Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yungabare people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. My name is Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We are one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode two of season two of the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with a guest who brings such a wealth of knowledge, experience and passion for planning, particularly in involving Indigenous peoples in planning and decision making. With a background in social science applied to urban and regional planning, she is passionate about working with communities to develop place-based solutions to planning challenges. Her real specialty is in Indigenous planning and planning for Aboriginal landowners. She's a Fellow of the Planning Institute and is the 2019 Australian Planner of the Year recognising her outstanding leadership and contribution in the area of Indigenous people's rights and interests in planning. She's adjunct associate professor at both James Cook Uni and Charles Darwin Uni, and she's recently started an exciting new position with Coffee as a senior associate in social impact. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sharon Harwood. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. And that was just a fabulous intro. Thank you so much. Not a problem. It's it's not hard to do when you've done such amazing work, and I'm so thrilled to have you. As uh, this is the first time to really diving into Indigenous people and our First Nation communities on the podcast, um, and it is something that you and I have spoken about. Uh, I think for for a couple of months now about really recording this episode because it is such such an important thing and something that you have so much expertise in. Um, and I wanted to just start the conversation and ask you. Why is it so important that we include Indigenous people in our planning processes? So many reasons why we should. Um, firstly, I think it's important to acknowledge that it's a human right and that um, we should also remember that sovereignty was never ceded by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So, in fact, we're on their land. So it's really important that we continue to engage with them and work with them about how we shape the development um, of land or uh, uh, lands and waters in Australia. It's also, to me, planning is the ultimate act of reconciliation. It's about how we work together to be able to understand what our shared future is for the future of the, the town, the city, the neighbourhood, the region that we all share and live in. But it's also, it brings balance to the way that plans evolve so, for example, I found in my work that the way that development aspirations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are typically, I found that they're typically not reflected in the planning system, not at the local or the state level. And that to me is the antithesis of planning because what we're about is about including everybody's aspirations. And we need to be able to find ways and mechanisms of having meaningful dialogue to understand what those aspirations are for future for future development or no development, but we need to understand them. And the only way we can do that is to work really well and closely with our First Nations people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that really sums up that imperative. That That's amazing. I've never heard anyone describe planning as being that ultimate act of reconciliation. And I think, you know, we've all heard the apologies and we've all heard these acknowledgements now and we're getting better at sort of, you know, um, including those acknowledgements in sort of, you know, you know, important places. But really, when are we any closer to true reconciliation? Uh, no. Not in my opinion, and I think that that's the really hard and very sad part for me because the, all the work that I've done, I've found that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been so disengaged or disenfranchised from development generally, which is which would explain why we have such disparities between health and well-being between Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous Australians because they have no control over their destiny, no, no control of the way that they they stop development or that they have development that meets their particular needs and, and aspirations. And so I think that having a planning system that can acknowledge those and legitimise those is really important. And to date, I'm not seeing it in the way that I would have hoped to have seen it evolve. It's taking some time. But, I mean, I, I suppose I suppose that that's, the, that's the nature of the beast is that being able to meet into in bringing two worldviews over one topic is really difficult because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people see planning in one way, but planners see it in another way and they define it in very restrictive statutory terms, whereas Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are thinking more in systematic terms. And so trying to reconcile those two worldviews is pretty difficult, particularly when non-Indigenous people don't really have that understanding. And if they've never worked with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they never understand how those worldviews influence the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people feel about development and cultural heritage protection. And particularly their ancestors, like the ancestors are absolutely critical to the way that development um, transpires. And, and I think that understanding that, 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 that land and waters have multiple dimensions is really important. And, and, and they're only, we're only just coming to that realisation now with the reviews of the Cultural Heritage Acts that we're having in Queensland. And unfortunately, we had to find out about doing these reviews as a consequence of the Duke and Gorge episode. I want to get to the Cultural Heritage Act amendments. I, you know, and I think, you know, I, I'd like to understand those recent changes to the legislative framework that makes, you know, the Indigenous engagement even more critical. And, you know, I, I think planners often think this is just about native title and it, it's got to be so much more than that. And, and I'm, I'm, yeah, could we go into some of those, those legislative changes that are coming or that are occurring? Well, we should start, well, there's a whole swag of them, really. So the the most recent one in 2020 was the Queensland Human Rights Act, and that specifically was Section 28. And to me, this is the most significant piece of legislation that Queensland has introduced because it follows essentially the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And it now requires planners um, to acknowledge, well, they, they have to consider land, territories, waters, coastal seas and other resources. So, so when we as planners do our plans, we look at spatial attributes and then the, we have to also work with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to understand what their distinctive spiritual, material and economic relationship is with the land, territories, waters, coastal seas and other resources. 
And then our job through the planning process is to maintain and strengthen those. Now, that's, I don't think that that's, I mean, we can't even get Section 52D of the Queensland Planning Act right, and that's to protect, promote and value Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge, culture and tradition. And in my opinion, we've done that, we've done that pretty poorly so far. So, um, like this uh, Section 28 of the Human Rights Act is incredibly, uh, I don't even know the word, it's like so adventurous because we still haven't even got the, the, the Planning Act and that's been around for six years now and we, we haven't quite got that right. And then just recently, the Queensland Government have been reviewing the Cultural Heritage Acts, so that's the Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Islander Cultural Heritage Acts, and they're both separate pieces of legislation. And they've and they've introduced a framework as well. And what they've also so that's a framework for assessing cultural heritage and how you protect it and how you develop it. And then who's involved in that process. So, and, and they've also like introduced the, the notion of intangible cultural heritage, which the old heritage, the cultural heritage acts are pretty clunky because they aren't, it was only all about stones and bones. And typically, this is your native title thing. It was typically everybody referred back to the, who'd had a successful determination over the area and they were then classed as the, the only people who had cultural authority over that land. So that's called the last claim standing. So, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the only people who have a connection with that country either. So, for instance, I live in Cairns and there have been three groups, three separate groups who have made a claim on the Cairns region and all three are probably quite legitimate, like have quite legitimate connections, but we're only like there'll be a winner and only one will win. And so that one group that wins will be then the cultural authority, will hold the cultural authority to make those decisions about development. But that just then, that ignores the other people's legitimate right to have a say as well. So I think if we can, if it, this is the good part about this, our Human Rights Act is that it takes us a step further and says if you've got a relationship, an Aboriginal person has a relationship with the land through their customs and traditions, then it doesn't matter about native title. It only matters about that they have that that um, that connection, and so therefore they have a legitimate right to have a say. So that's the human rights. Then the um, the Heritage Act will also acknowledge that, but we still haven't really got quite into the Planning Act. Nobody's really quite got that sus just yet, which is disappointing. But I think through the work that the the Human Rights Act and the Cultural Heritage Act reviews do, I think that that will that will make a pretty big and very quick change to the way we do our work. Mm, it's definitely coming by the sounds of that. And I think just touching on that point that you make about you know the three separate groups all having you know a, a, a stake or, or a relationship with the lands you know i think that's what makes this quite complex you know and to planners and to practitioners you know in terms of consulting properly and making sure you know the right people are engaged you know it can be quite daunting so i'm keen to understand from you you know how do you consult properly with indigenous people you know we we traditionally go out with surveys and and pop something up on a website and you know might have a few drop-in sessions you know for the community members but you know how you know we've got to think about the difference here in cultures and, and views and you know and, and a lot of different matters here how, how do you do this properly so that it's meaningful engagement 
Well, you have to take a human rights approach again, and that means that everybody that has that connection has the right to have a say. And so I think, and the other thing is you can't do these public meetings, you know, when you get to a community hall and you say, come one, come all and have your say, because that's not going to work. Nobody's going to talk openly. And you also can't have... I'm going to be quite honest and frank. I really, the thing I hate the most in engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are sausage sizzles, where they um, have a sausage sizzle and then people rock up and they have a sausage and then they go away. So then that's counted as them having been engaged with. But in reality, all they've had is a sausage. They've not had any meaningful engagement whatsoever. So yeah. there's a lot of really good ways of doing it and there's but I'm only still seeing some pretty poor ways. I'd like to see something a little bit different. So I think if you take a human rights approach, and that's what the the beauty of the Queensland Human Rights Act is, is that it requires you to do that, especially as a public entity. And if you don't do that, then there's a recourse. And while it it can't make you redo the planning, the, the, the plan, what it can make you do is redo the engagement that led to that plan, which ultimately means that if you redo the engagement, you have to redo the plan. So you don't want to go down that way. No, you want, to do it, you want to do it appropriately from the start. Totally. That's some serious ramifications. Um, have we seen any of that really translate yet? Like have we seen this, you know, this kind of course of action where, you know, if you don't do it properly, you do need to redo that engagement. Has that happened yet? Not yet. But the the Human Rights Act only came out like two years ago, yeah. And and I don't know that it's as well known, and and I certainly don't think that I think it's going to open a can of worms because everybody's been conditioned according to this native title process, which is the last claim standing. So I think once you get a bit better understanding of what it what that connection and connection with through Aboriginal custom and tradition will mean, then then we'll start to see some some interesting outcomes. And I, I also think that being more self-determined and having that confidence to be able to speak up. Aboriginal people, particularly when I go out to remote communities, they are still really suppressed or oppressed because, and they don't really understand or engage with the planning system. I remember when the planning, the first planning scheme was done for Woodjil Woodjil and I was doing some work up there on a totally different topic and one of the TO's traditional owners was talking to me about wanting to do some development in town and I said to her, why didn't you go and participate in the engagement activities because what she wanted to do on a particular block of land she couldn't do because the planning scheme had gone in a different direction. I said, why didn't you go and have a yarn with the planners when they came to do that that work and she said oh, I just thought it was just another one of those government things that and I just you know that they just ignore me so I didn't bother having I didn't bother going so wow. you can see that there's a disconnection and disengagement because you have a say but you're just ignored or so why bother so yeah. I, I would never want that to be um, an outcome that we have as as a consequence of planning because really we would want to engage as best we can it's also important. The other thing that I haven't quite grappled with, and I'm honest about it, is that Indigenous knowledge has a, a financial or an economic value. And much like I'm paid as a professional, like I've gone through university and got a degree in planning, Aboriginal people go through a process 
that are socialized in in a in a way they they get roles within their clans and that that's an accumulation of knowledge and then they become there's certain people who can speak about certain things within a clan or within a family group and that's a form of knowledge and education in and of itself it's not at a university but they've got their own university system which is going through that 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 learning process from a child to to an elder and so i think that we we need to be able to value that contribution and charge it accordingly as well it's not like we're bribing for an outcome what we're doing is we're saying we value your knowledge in in this process and therefore we would like to have you participate and and you know hopefully with this cultural heritage act reviews we'll be able to see that knowledge that they develop their own plans and that they are paid accordingly to develop those plans and administer the procedural rights that come come from those plans so i think it's also important to understand that you know aboriginal people you know that we get paid to do our job so there's no reason why they shouldn't get paid to do their job totally and i think that makes total sense i wouldn't have even thought of that but yeah I think that's a really great point. I just want to go back to your comment around sausage sizzles. I I can totally appreciate that how, you know, you could see that might be a a way to sort of bring people together, but exactly what you're saying that where, you know, it needs to be meaningful engagement. What would be a more appropriate setting? Is it more appropriate to go to these Indigenous communities? I mean, I know when we travelled through, you know, Cape York and Torres Strait, you know, there was, you know, there were some areas you you couldn't go. And, and so, you know, there, there's these cultural sensitivities. Is it, you know, how do you sort of navigate that? Or is it best to sort of get someone on board with the project who knows these things? You can do both. It, I've only ever worked for Aboriginal corporations before. I've never done, to me, that's just the, the most appropriate way because then they're in control of um, the knowledge, the information flows, and they like that's a form of self-determination. So I've only ever worked for Aboriginal corporations, and they have always identified the people who can speak about certain things to me, and they would also organise the meetings, and that we would sit around at a round table and have those those conversations. But there's a whole swag of other things that I think that having an understanding of the cultural nuances as well because there's things like avoidance relationships you can't have you know they call them poison cousins or poison sisters you know you can't have people together in a room but it's really important that you get their perspective on 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 um, about you know the future so you have to also be careful about that so to me it's I think it's most appropriate that you employ a specialist from that clan to participate in the in, in in designing the engagement and that they are responsible for working with their clan to come up with the engage the most appropriate form of engagement so then again everything is focused they have the control of how they want to um, be engaged with and who sh- can represent them or who can speak about certain topics i think it's just best that way and that's the only way that i've worked and I, to me it's it's always been very successful because they own the process and I work with them to design the engagement uh, about a particular project this is I'll give some suggestions then we talk about which is the best the best way and the best and who to talk to but it's also about we also have to remember that that we're working within that planning system to get a particular outcome so we have to have the engagement that aligns to get the outcome if that makes any sense yep 
Absolutely. So, so it's, then it becomes a social learning process as well. So I work with the, the corporation to tell them like, this is what planning is and this is what it can do and this is what it can't do. And this is the process that we could go through to be able to get to those outcomes. But you, you tell me who's going to come and who's not and, and where we'll have it and who gets paid and who doesn't. So that's, that's part of the project and that's, that's their business. They're in control. I'm just a consultant. Yeah, wow. It's really quite collaborative. It's sharing knowledge two ways and it's getting them involved in that co-design process by the sounds of it. Oh, it has to be totally co-designed. If it's not co-designed, it's not going to work. It's just yeah. like you're just forcing a square peg into a round hole. So don't even bother. And do you find they're quite different? You know, so one approach that you take with one clan and, and one Aboriginal corporation can vary depending on, you know, the the people that are involved and, uh, you know, the cultures that sit behind them. For sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and also remembering that Aboriginal people have, like all clans have got a different history and that they they were removed because um, they they were removed, they were removed from their country in different ways, and their the way that they've adapted their so it's called indigenous knowledge, how they've brought in the Western system and considered it re- relative to their traditional system is all different across. I've only worked mostly in Northern Australia, so in Northern Australia it's all very different. So I've worked in West Arnhem, in West Australia, and along all throughout Cape York, and every group is different, but. It's no different to, you know, working on Gold Coast City Council to Cairns to Cloncurry. I would use entirely different methods to suit yeah. that particular population too. So because they've all got different histories and experiences with development, so you know you have to you have to be really flexible as a planner. You know you've got to be really flexible. It's it, you've got to co-design with everybody you work with. Exactly. Okay, and I just want to go to this question. I think it's fairly obvious, but I think it's it's important to sort of ask around who's responsible for engaging with Indigenous people. You know, is it just a a, a government, you know, local government, state government, or is this, you know, developers as well? You know, thinking about our planning profession, you know, we work for a number of different, um, you know, non-government and government agencies. And I just want to really put it out there. Who's responsible for engaging with Indigenous people? I think it's it's okay to say this, everybody is, but in Section 52D under the Planning Act, all entities are responsible for implementing, or like if you create or amend a planning instrument, so you look at Section 4 of the Planning Act, the local government has to be, and the entity performing the action, um, they, all, they are all responsible for implementing Section 52D, and the only way you can protect, promote, and value Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge, culture and tradition is to work with them and ask them what that is and what's an appropriate level of protection, an appropriate level of promotion and how they would deem what is acceptable valuing of their knowledge, culture and tradition. And then in the, the Human Rights Act, if you're, it's, it's all public entities. And that also includes it. So if you're working for a private firm on behalf of a local or state government, you still have to implement the Human Rights Act because that binds all public entities. So I think if it's just safer, everybody's responsible. Yeah. Okay. I'd like to know what you've found most interesting about your engagement with Indigenous people. Um, you know, what, what's sort of been those standout sort of, you know, moments and memories that you've got from your experiences and, and what are the lessons you've learnt through that time that you sort of haven't already mentioned? Well, I'd have to say the most interesting one 
ever was I was working in um, in the Gulf of Carpentaria, and I was working with a, a group, and we were discussing where they where where would be the best place to install uh, fishing platforms off of the off of the beach or off of the cliffs, and because you know the crocs are huge, and you, and you can't you have to try it, you, and everybody wants to be fishing, of course, because that's the most coolest thing to do. But we'd also like to stay alive. And so there, there was the idea of um, putting fishing platforms. And I had a look at the, the the map and I found this particular area and I thought, you know, in terms of all of its attributes, got the right height, got the right depths into the ocean, got access, all those sorts of things, all those things that a typical planner would think. Yep. And so I said to the um, lady I was working with, I reckon here is the best spot for a fishing platform. And she looked at me as if I was insane. <laughs> and she said, why would you put it there? That's the tail of the rainbow serpent. If you put it there, then you'll upset the rainbow serpent and then we'll all be in really big strife afterwards. Like, why would you do that? And and she could see the tail of the rainbow serpent as clear as I could see the landform. Yeah, well. And I think I, that's when I realised what I see isn't the same things as what other people see. And so never assume and always ask. And so yeah. that's that whole co-design. Even though I'd co-designed that process with them, I came up with this solution and it was so totally wrong. But it also made me realise that the of the multi-dimensional aspect of a landscape and, yeah. you know, when you go on country, you, you typically when you work with traditional owners, they'll do a smoking ceremony. So that smoking is to make you smell the same as them so that the ancestors don't target you for bad things to happen. So everyone has to smell the same. And then at the same time when the, you're, you're being welcomed, the traditional owners talks to the ancestors and says, I'm bringing these people on country. It's okay. They're with me. Keep them safe. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's how I've been introduced to it. And, and yeah. as far as we worked in in the north, it's been that's matter. You know, it's a safety issue. Yeah. It's yeah. it's very much about your own personal safety. And so, when I think about that, and, and, and I've gone out on country with um, other people before, and we've always said, you know, hello to the ancestors, and it's okay. Um, please protect me, and so forth. But I never really thought about the the stories I just thought about the ancestors and I never really thought about the stories like the rainbow serpent and um, now that we're getting this new cultural heritage act or the reviews going in I kind of understand now why that's really important because I can't see the landscape like there's this cultural dimension that I can't see but only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from that from their location they're the only ones who can see it and they're the only ones who can speak about it so now it becomes so critical to me to have those cultural heritage plans so that, well, we can protect that cultural heritage, but it also stops those instances where some good, well-meaning person like myself doesn't go and stab the poor rainbow serpent in, in the tail, in the tail. And, and evil befall everybody forever until it's removed, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> Gosh, what a story. And how, you know, how fascinating that that, that is sort of how they see country. Do you think there's a, you know, down the track we'll get to a point of being able to map these attributes, you know, and really value them? Or, or is it sort of something that because of the way that the culture is that they sort of pass this down through through storytelling and, you know, 
you know, can we mish, mash sort of planning, mapping and, and sort of cultural, um, you know, understanding, do you think? Oh, that would be fabulous and really logical, but I don't reckon that that's, I don't think it's appropriate because yeah. for us as non-Indigenous Australians, for us to, it, our culture is to share knowledge yeah. But for Aboriginal people that I've worked with, it's not about sharing knowledge. There are very strict protocols about who holds the cultural knowledge and who holds the authority. Yeah. And to share would be in, like takes that away. And so it's, you know, like almost saying like everybody can be a doctor or everybody can be a surveyor. That's not going to ever happen. So that's why there are quite strict protocols about who speaks about what because they're the expert. So yeah. I don't know that we'll ever get about get to that point, and I don't think that it's our business to know the details. But what I do think it's our business is to know which areas can never be developed, and on those areas that could be developed under certain circumstances, because you want to be able to remove places from consideration because they've got such significant cultural heritage values. Yeah, and I've worked with another group, and we developed clan zones. And, and those clan zones, because I, I, we talked about cultural heritage and, and I don't, it's not my place to know what the, how significant it is. It's only important that they know it's significant. And they, they chose these particular areas on their country that said this is only for the clans and this is where we will practice our traditions and do our ceremonies and then where we will work together and, you know, like to get that cohesion and when, because there's a whole swag of people who don't live on country, when they come home, we can bring them back to these places and we can teach them about their culture. So those sorts of things were really important, but I didn't need to know about that. I just needed to know, is this, like, can we do development here or can't we do development here? And they said to me, the clan zones are are prohibited. There are certain other pockets. They said, this we could potentially have a look at, but only under certain circumstances. And these areas over here, yeah, that's okay. There's, it's nothing particularly special about those. So I think that's all we really need to know. But I think yeah. we have to go through that journey. And the other thing that's really critical to me is that we get more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, older people too, trained as planners so that they can, they can absolutely explain both sides, you know, they, um, they call it code switching. Aboriginal people call it code switching. So they switch from Aboriginal code to what, uh, you know, indige- non-Indigenous code. And yeah. they're the only people who can walk that line and do the interpretation across both worldviews. And, and so I think, you know, that to me is the most important thing for us as a profession is to really foster um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth to come through and see planning as a legitimate career so that they can go home to their or work with their, their people and um, develop appropriate plans for them based on their worldviews, but kind of understanding what the system can and can't deliver. Amazing. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with me today, Sharon, and, and all our listeners as well. I've really appreciated it. And, and, you know, we're running out of time very quickly, but that has been a fascinating conversation, um, and I think the standout for me is that planning is the ultimate act of reconciliation, and you know, and we all have a role to play in, in engaging with Indigenous people and co-designing uh, planning and and our future plans, um, so that they're involved and, and their their thoughts, their cultures, their experiences, um, and their futures are considered in our future plans. So. Uh, I've taken a lot out of that and I've written a whole page of notes. So, so thank you so much, Sharon. I really appreciate your time. 
It was absolutely my pleasure. I'm so happy to be able to share. And thank you for tuning in to the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review so that others find out about it and I can keep making these episodes. You can follow the show on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast, and LinkedIn, search for Hustle and Bustle podcast and request to join the group. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.